Hello and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. My name is Ben Golke. And I'm Brian Gates. Please be sure to check out our website at mvc.fm for an archive of our shows where you can listen right on the page, access the show notes, and find out how to subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, which you can provide by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or tweeting us at MVC Podcast. This week we're going to be talking about doing the work of software outside of the software industry, and we'll lead off with Ben, who has an exciting announcement. Ben! Yes, I do. Uh, so as you may know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, we both are former instructors. We used to teach at a uh, company called The Iron Yard, which is a 12-week boot camp. Uh, that's kind of how we met and how we started this podcast, actually. Um, and so we've since gone on from there and have gone back into kind of the traditional programming jobs where you work for a company and you build software for them. Um, and I'm very excited to announce that I'm actually going to be going back to teaching. So Woo-hoo! I've... <laughs> so I've recently uh, been able to um, get the opportunity to go work at a company called Lambda School, which is a similar situation to the, what the Iron Nerd was, except that this is fully online. Um, so I'll be teaching uh, remotely. Um, basically, the staff and the students are both remote. So we connect through video chat and Slack and stuff like that to um, to provide lectures and all those kinds of things. Uh, and then, you know, one-on-one help, stuff like that. So it's going to be really fun. Uh, and it is um, a, an immersive course, just like I taught at the Iron Yard. I'm going to be teaching iOS again, which is great. So I'm super excited. That is so great. I'm so glad you, you have a chance to return to the work you love. And um, why not expound a, a little bit on what do you think are the most uh, most salient differences between that kind of work and the stuff that we've both been doing for the past year, year and a half. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting, too, because I, I haven't, you know, prior to the Iron Road, I, I'd only really had experience at, at what we're doing now, right? The kind of the, you, you work, you go in, you work for someone, you build them software that either is for them directly to, you know, to benefit the employees of the company or potentially to benefit the customers of that company, but nonetheless, you are building software for, you know, for someone. Um, and that's all I really had before as far as experience. And then getting to do the, the teaching thing really kind of takes you away, truly away from the business of making software to make software. And now you are building software to facilitate learning, um, which is a, you know, a totally different, uh, a totally different goal, I think. So doing that, going to teach and then coming back into industry and then now going again back into teaching, um, it's it's given me an interesting perspective on the differences. So one of the big differences that uh, that I really felt between teaching and the current work I'm in is because the job that I have now is part of a very large team, I end up being a fairly small part of it. And so there's certainly complicated technical issues to work through but I don't really have input on the architecture of what we're building. And it's much more of a task-focused existence. Whereas teaching, especially where we were, there wasn't any kind of established curriculum until the, right at the end they, they tried to present us with something. But for most of the way through, our mandate was go forth and instruct. Right, and there was no script, there was no curriculum. It was up to us to say what we were going to do each day, each hour in the room. 
Right. Yeah, you definitely get an opportunity to explore things that you probably never would be able to in a traditional job just because they're they're off the beaten path enough that they're just not typically part of most companies' business goals. And so they're because of that, they're not going to pay you just to mess around, right? So uh, usually anyway. Um, so you just don't get a chance to explore those things. Whereas when you are presented with the opportunity to build a curriculum and and teach whatever you think really is relevant to make someone a well-rounded junior programmer, there are all kinds of things you get to explore that you just don't typically get the chance to do. An example on iOS would be like, I got to do Sprite Kit stuff, which is 2D gaming, which is a, it's a framework that's built into iOS to let you do 2D gaming. Um, and things like, you know, Bluetooth, the little low low power Bluetooth beacons and stuff like that, that just... You might hit some of that occasionally if the if the business needs align at the company that you're working at, but in in most cases you're going to be building more, you know, CRUD style stuff. So uh, create, read, update, delete, right? To, uh, form entry things and stuff like that. Stuff that is, you know, I don't want to say boring, but is is very, um, you know, it's business focused. Routine, yeah, yeah, routine. We're trying to get you know information from a customer, or we're trying to sign them up for something or whatever. And so these flows that end up getting created or, you know, you, you see patterns over and over again. Um, whereas there's just a lot more, a wider array of things you can kind of play with when it comes to building things for a curriculum, because you, you do want to make sure that the, that the student has the, has the ability to think abstractly and to, and to, um, to work on different kinds of things. And so just having them build a form over and over and over again is not really going to expand their mind very much um so you get that kind of opportunity to to play with all these different you know cool uh, aspects of programming that you may or may not touch in industry for me the the really big win about teaching was not so much the exposure or the chance to expose students to a wide variety of topics although that's fun too but the autonomy that came with the fact that the curriculum was completely my own and if i wanted to to teach Ruby on Rails and do Ruby first or Rails first or uh, just general computer science kind of things first or HTML, CSS and get into the other stuff later. Uh, whatever order, whatever emphasis I wanted to have, that was completely my choice. Yeah, you said before that you feel like on a team, it's it's easy to not really feel like you have much agency and being able to you know, make decisions that you feel are going to be impactful to that product and that team. Um, and I, and it's, it definitely seems like it's completely the opposite when you're, when you're teaching a group of, of students. Um, it's sometimes kind of in almost kind of a scary way where you're like, boy, I, this is a lot of responsibility to, to make sure that the curriculum and the, the style in which I'm, I'm giving this instruction is, uh, you know, is, is appropriate and is, um, is enough, right. To get the point across and, and get these students to, you know, know what they need to know and, and be competent developers when we're done. Um, but at the same time, it's like you said, it's very empowering to feel like that is happening. That's one of probably my favorite parts about getting the experience of teaching was that I hadn't really experienced before, which is this idea that you have such an ability to, to really feel like you come in and you provide a service, right? You're teaching a group of students and you're mentoring them and stuff like that. So you're kind of your product. The thing that you're producing is, uh, you know, the educational content and also this kind of advice and mentorship that you're giving to the students. And that input, when you do it in, you know, in, in, in the programming world as, a, as just a programmer in a, you know, in a cubicle or in an office, you're putting all that work into a product and then 
the output is, well, the product gets created and then it goes out maybe to either other employees within the company or goes out to customers. And maybe you hear something back at some point about it. Maybe you don't. Whereas when you teach, you get you that like, yeah, you get that really immediate feedback the same day, the next day, the next week. As the words are coming out of your mouth, you can see yes. whether people are getting it or not. Yes. They either look completely puzzled or they yes. look like they, oh, you know, you see little light bulbs mm-hmm. flash for them. Um, and, and over time, over the course of, of the of the time that you're with that student, um, you get to see them progress and you get to see them do things that they didn't think they could do before, you know, when the class started. Um, and so it's a very, very tangible set of outputs that you are able to observe, you know, for better or worse. If you're not doing a good job, you can see, oh, I need to correct and, and do better at this to improve this process. And if you're doing a good job, then you really, you know, can really see that immediately. Whereas it's just much harder to to know that when you are, kind of in that traditional world. And I think that's why it's important for companies to do, you know, we should probably be doing more as an industry to encourage uh, more regular feedback for developers because it's so difficult to know if, you know, if what you're doing is the right thing. Yeah, I assume that there are people making those decisions about what is right and how the project I'm working on is supposed to be built, but I'm just not a part of those discussions. i all I know as far as feedback is what comes in is bug reports from from the testers. I know it's a it's a widely used thing. I mean this this product is being used by hundreds of thousands of, of people uh, on a pretty regular basis. I mean it's a it's a business product and so people are using it as part of their daily work routine. But I don't get to see anyone doing that or find out what are the rough edges, what are the the annoyances, and what things could be done to make your work easier, which is really the point of this kind of business application is to save people time and annoyance in their work, which I think is a a pretty noble goal, all things considered. Nor do you get to see the parts where they're delighted by the work that you've done, right? You you, you You don't have enough of that sort of critical feedback right criticism of oh this could be better and you also don't, aren't really getting any like hey this thing that you built is amazing right like this really does help it does it does give us you know an ability to to leverage our time and 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 do something more efficiently uh and i think both the sort of criticism and that positive feedback neither they're both lacking uh in in the software industry yeah that and the uh, illumination of what really does this product do for you you know what what does a day in your work life look like and how does this tool help especially because it's a big complicated tool in an industry that i'm not at all familiar with and so i i know the lingo used in it enough to parrot it to the other developers when we're talking about building features that will do a you know a purge and roll forward for instance but what exactly those words mean, I still don't know because I'm not in contact with the end user and I don't see them purging and rolling forward. <laughs> Whatever that is. Whatever that is. So you have some experience being on the other side of this table, um, being a non-technical meaning in the sense of yeah. like programming, uh, you know, and, and dealing with, with software teams and stuff like that uh, kind of in your previous career. Can you maybe maybe you could provide a little bit of insight into how that worked for you then, um, and we could you know see if there's ways that we could you know give advice to improve that relationship. 
Yeah, that was a really fun role. I, I was in a small biotech company in uh, San Diego, California, and the focus of the company was to provide a computer system that would give an expert guidance to microbiologists who were dealing with uh, an enormous amount of experimental data. This was right around the turn of the century when um, new technologies were providing just vastly more numbers and results uh, out of out of lab experiments than had ever been available before. And the biologists were just swamped with the data and didn't know how to really make sense of it all. And this company had figured out a way of taking all that data and representing it in a, a very pleasant graphical format, uh, showing how the experimental data correlated with the metabolism of an entire microbe, a bacteria or yeast cell or something like that. And you could visualize it through the computer system so you could see what metabolic pathways were being turned on and off and at what levels and what genes were on and what genes were, were mutated out and that kind of stuff. And I got into that company as a biologist. And the company was, it was a small group. There were maybe a dozen people working and probably half were Java developers, which is a world I really didn't know anything about at all. And I was interested in looking over their shoulders and seeing what they were doing. And they were very interested in learning about biology because obviously none of them were biologists before but they had to understand biology well enough to build a tool that was going to help biologists. And so we had this running dialogue for about a year where they would ask me what's mRNA and RNA and what's, um, what does protein synthesis look like? And I would ask them what's, a, what's version control and what's you know, all the, the software stuff that we've come to take for granted. So it's like a cultural exchange program where you're, yeah. <laughs> where you're yeah. sharing, this is my world. I was kind of the ambassador from the biologists to the world of the Java developers. Right. Yeah, and I, I really wish that that was kind of a more common thing where you had, you know, my dad works in the in the Department of Defense world, um, and there's this, I'm sure this is a, a, a term used probably everywhere, but uh, DOD people, military people, love their acronyms, and so... Um, he he has people on, on on his staff that are what are called SMEs, right? Subject matter experts. So um, that's a that's not a specific thing to that one industry, but maybe calling it a SME is I don't know. Um, but uh, these people that you know they don't necessarily know anything about coding, but they know everything there is to know about this particular tank, right? Or or this aircraft or this whatever, right? He works in simulation, and so it's all about taking things from the real world: planes, tanks, weapons. Uh, you know, troops, uh, water trucks, right? That, that bring water to out to a, to a group of people that are out somewhere in the desert or whatever. Um, all of these things have to be modeled and simulated so that the game that's played can be as realistic as possible for purposes of training. And so there's the idea of learning, you know, knowing how to model those things in software, but then you have to know what those things are, right? You have to understand what they're like and 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 get a sense of them so that you can then actually properly model those things just like in your case right java developers can build things to to give you all kinds of cool visualizations but they don't have any idea what they're looking at then they don't even know if they've done it correctly right so you have to have that combination of um of subject matter knowledge and technical knowledge and i really wish that there was more 
opportunity to to do that in industry, like you said, where you you know you have this interesting like cultural exchange between two groups of humans who who can communicate with the same language, but yet are are still pretty far apart in their you know in their knowledge. And you know, I, I've always thought that that's a place where people who want to get into software probably have uh, an advantage that they don't know that they have, which is that everybody is a subject matter expert at whatever their job is. And it can be tough if you're in a very technical field like biology was or like the Pentagon is to be both a subject matter expert and also know enough about software to make a big impact on your own. But if you have a job where you spend any amount of time interacting with a computer and probably interacting with uh, one or more spreadsheets or one or more spreadsheets plus a couple other programs or websites, there's probably some workflow that you and the people around you have to do on a regular basis that just feels harder than it ought to be. And if you're the one who's been doing that over and over for weeks or months or years, then you are the expert in that workflow. And so you can... Um, you can skip what is always one of the hardest um, processes in kicking off a new software project, which is gathering requirements and communicating to a technical person, here's what we need software to do for us, because you know what the software needs to do. It's make your life easier in some specific way. And so if you're just getting into to software, I think that's a great opportunity to put together a little forum in Ruby and Rails or in Drupal or Laravel or something, or look into the APIs where you can interact with Excel or Word and build something that will make your life easier in a way that only you and the people in your department know is a problem. Yeah, but my sister, who is now a computer science graduate and a programmer, um, before that was working at a company where I don't know the specifics of it and I don't know the workflow because I didn't work there, but there was apparently some sort of manual process that involved literally a filing cabinet full of paper um, that was that needed to be managed and needed to be sorted and collated and organized and look things up in there and pull things out and put them back in the right place. Um, so just some sort of manual process that uh, was pretty integral to the, to the work. Um, and when she arrived, that's how that's how it worked. And over the course of I don't know exactly how long, a year or two, uh, she learned the process, discovered that it was likely the case that this could be digitized and made much easier for everyone involved. And so she just went about the process of doing it, of just saying, okay, I, I'm, she didn't really necessarily program anything, but she she automated and digitized a process that was very physical, uh, you know, in the real world and, and manual. Um, and they were able to eventually get rid of that filing cabinet and they went to a fully digital process and, and everyone in the, in the group was kind of, n none of them were really programmers or, or, you know, overly technical. Um, and they were all kind of just sort of stunned at like the awestruck, right? That they yeah. Didn't, they didn't know that that kind of solution existed or could exist in the world. Right. Yeah, it was like bringing fire, right? Just yeah. <laughs> almost in the sense where you're like, I didn't even know this was even an a possibility, and yet now not only does it exist, but it's already done. Like you've already you've already made this so much easier and better for everyone. Yeah, and I think that's uh, a related superpower that people getting into tech have is beyond being able to build stuff yourself, you know about the tools that are out there 
that you can wire together. Like I, I just kind of casually mentioned, oh, well, there are APIs in Excel that can do blah, blah, blah. And no one who's not a developer is aware that those things exist. And even if you are a developer, you might not have ever looked into what are the APIs in Excel, but as soon as I say it, you think, oh, well, yeah, there probably are. And then I can manipulate the rows and the columns and do the sorting automatically. I'm sure I could work that out. And if you have a situation, I'm sure there are situations in offices all over the world where people spend, you know, a couple hours a week sorting one column and then another column just by hand, uh, you could probably save person's centuries of effort with with the rightly constructed little uh, little shell script that you can just run on the command line and say open up this excel file and do this thing that replicates somebody pressing five buttons and and just make things a little bit easier it'd be like if you go into an office and uh, and there are stacks of books all over the place and you're the only one who goes in there who knows of the existence of ikea and you're going to say, right. well, I can make this a lot better. Check this yeah. out. Yeah. Here, it's called a bookshelf. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard of those. I didn't know you could build those. That is right. awesome. But people just got lucky and they just appeared. Um, I remember in in, uh, in a previous job, I I was at a, a support tech and then I eventually became a programmer. Um, and so I interacted with the techs a lot. And I remember teaching at one point a fellow tech who was receiving some kind of very, very long file from some vendor that we worked with. Uh, and it was a CSV. So he was taking that and importing it into Excel and then manipulating that table that table of things in Excel by hand. And so I, you know, he was kind of complaining a little like, boy, this, this really takes a long time and it's it's very manual and whatever. And so I just watched him for a few minutes. Okay, what are you what are you doing? What 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 is this? And he's like, oh, it's this data file that we eventually have to bring into our software, but um, it doesn't, of course, right? It doesn't come from the vendor correct. It doesn't come in the right format that it needs to be to be accepted by our software. So I have to manually fuss with it a little bit and get it right, and then we can import it. And I said, okay, well, what what are those steps? What are you doing? And so he described them to me, and he showed me how he does it, and he was kind of doing them basically one field at a time. And I said, okay, I bet you we can speed this up. Let's let's kind of write down the, the steps that you have to take, which we did, and then I showed him VI, which is an, it's just an editor. Um, it's a way to edit text um, at a command line. It's traditionally installed on Unix-based systems, um, and we were actually a pretty heavily Linux-based company. Um, so he had a terminal, and he was he was familiar enough with that kind of stuff that it wasn't super foreign. And so I said, okay, let's let's pull this file into VI. Um, and then let's start working with um, Find and Replace, which is not that novel, but um, VI's Find and Replace is very powerful. It has you know, regular expressions, and it can do all kinds of really cool stuff. You can also, with VI commands, you can repeat things. And it, anyway, it, it just kind of, if you know what you're doing, it can really speed up your workflow. It has a really high learning curve, but but it is very powerful. So I showed him, okay, the first thing you need to do is this thing, right? I said, okay, here, boom, I'm going to show you how to do it, where rather than doing it once, I'm going to do it to every single instance that this needs to be changed mm-hmm. at one, in one step, right? And so I showed him, and his eyes got like the size of dinner plates. Uh-huh. He was just he was just like, what? I can't believe you can that this is possible. This is great. I can do this entire file now. I can edit the whole thing in three minutes, mm-hmm. right? Whereas it t- took me, I don't even want to know how long it took him before, but um, he was able to do it so much faster 
by simply automating a process. And what we were doing wasn't really programming. It was just, I would call it like pseudo programming. It's sort of programming adjacent. You know, it's yeah. in that realm, but it's not really, it's not code. Um, and it's just, it's, it's amazing what you can bring to bear on something if you know a little bit about, you know, both the subject matter. You know, I, I didn't, that's the thing is I was able to, I had the tools to do that, but I didn't know what he was trying to accomplish. I didn't have the business goals in right. mind because I didn't know what they were. So you have to, he as the SME had to explain it to me. Okay, this is what we need to do. And then I was able to take that and apply technical uh, processes to it to make it better. Um, and I think that's that's really where you get a lot of the wins, right? Is when you can bring those two things yeah. together, like, like yeah. you were saying. And that's the kind of thing I'm sure it, the process of watching him do what he was doing until you were sure that you you saw and understood the whole thing, that was 90% of the time, right? And then writing the regular expression in, in VI was the work of a moment. Right. And, and you get that, uh, I think uh, that's a, a common thing when you're writing a larger scale software project is understanding everything that this thing is supposed to do that can take weeks and months if you're if you're just gathering the requirements up front or if you're doing more of an agile kind of methodology it's a, a recurring thing which can still be you know hours every couple of weeks or something but if you if you are the person who has that domain knowledge then you've done that already just in the course of your normal work and now if you want to turn and apply that to building a tool for yourself, that part can go relatively quickly. Yeah, I think one of the things that juniors seem to have a lot of trouble with in this area is patience, is not being patient enough to understand what they need to do before they do it. I something that, that we saw a lot, you know, when we were teaching is we would, you know, in some cases we would literally give assignments that didn't actually even have enough requirements, right? It would only be... 60% of what you needed to know in order to do the assignment was written down. That, that was given out, right, to every student. So then what we expected was they would probably start working on it and go, oh, I don't actually know enough about this to be able to do it. And, and what we were trying to get them to do was to stand up and come over to us and talk to us and say, hey, I don't think this is – I don't think I have enough information here. Like, is there, you know, what else do I need to know? Or, or, or what about this thing? Or have you thought about that? Or starting to bring up questions that can help fill out that story so that they then have a better understanding of what needs to be done. Um, and I, I think something that we could offer as advice to juniors is, you know, whether you're in an educational environment where you're learning or, or you are out in the world and you're, you're in the industry and you're, and you're building something, uh, do not be afraid to ever go ask questions to get clarification on what it is that you're trying to build. Because what you definitely don't want to do is, is sit down with your head down and, and code and build something that then they're like, this is not at all what we wanted, right? You want to make sure that you're kind of constantly checking if the direction you're going is the right direction and if that's what they want. Because oftentimes SMEs, you know, whether we're talking about just people who know a lot of, about the industry or, or your manager or whoever it is, they probably haven't fully conceived the idea in their head um, and they haven't necessarily visualized the whole solution. And so you might start working on their problem and you start to build a solution and then it turns out that the the outcome is not what they were expecting because they, again they weren't necessarily kind of dealing 
in all the eventualities that might occur. Um, and they might go, oh, this is taking a direction that we actually didn't intend. Or, oh, this is different, but we like it. Or whatever that might be. Um, and so it's really good to to constantly, you know, especially at the beginning and, and even in the middle, to c- continue to ask for feedback and advice and, and, and clarification on the steps that need to be taken. Because you might even be trying to solve a problem that they they that either has never been solved before or maybe it's just that it was you know it was a kernel of a of a problem right it was a small hey it'd be great if we could do x but then when you start to break that apart and and turn it into a solution it turns out that there's all kinds of other things that need to be decided and also to add on to that don't be afraid to uh to get feedback when you know that the solution is not complete because it I can guarantee that your threshold for completeness is going to be a lot higher than whoever you're solving the problem for. <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you have this software tool, let's go back to sorting the Excel stuff. Maybe the the first regular expression that Ben wrote worked unless there was some kind of non-English language character, like the N with a little tilde over it. Maybe it would choke on that and not know what to do. And if Ben were working on that thing on his own, he would have the the option of either researching further to figure out how to deal with that one specific case that doesn't come up too much or present what he had done to the person who he was going to help and say, hey, I have this thing. It'll take care of like 80 or 90 percent of your work. There's this one thing that I know about where it's not going to be helpful. If you tell somebody, hey, I know you have this task that's just drudgery that burns a couple hours of your week and I can make 90% of it magically go away. That's going to get a pretty positive response. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to completely solve this problem forever. It can be, I've taken two hours of your life and now it's going to be five minutes of your life. If you're dealing with someone with a Hispanic name, that's, that's fine. That's great. Your life is better because the the problems that we're solving importantly are not the kind of problems where you need to get 100%. I mean, if you're building airplanes, you can't say, hey, I have a way to fly across the country. The wings do fall off if they get wet. <laughs> that's that's a, a problem where you need to get to 100% yes. solution. But for the stuff that we're dealing with, 90% is great. Yeah, and they might even you might even be worried about this edge case, and then you go to them and they're like, oh, that doesn't actually ever happen. Or it happens so rarely that I'll just deal with it or whatever. Um, it, you know, the, again, not only is it knowing the different ways that it can you know the the different um outcomes that can that can be created from you know you running your your application or whatever it is that you've built your your tool um there's all these things that could happen but then it's a matter of what's actually important to the person that's going to use it and and it could be that you're like well this is educates and they're like well that's fine um because again, you've you've automated most of it for them, and and they they appreciate that, and um, they can deal with that one edge case when it does crop up. And you'll find, I think, if you're dealing with this sort of thing and building tools to assist your own workday, that um, you get to a point of diminishing returns, right? In in writing the software, in automating something that's just going to help out you and your department. Uh, to get the 80% that is going to solve hours a week for everybody, that might be something that takes you a weekend. And to get to 100% could end up taking you months and months to, to track down every possible edge case and deal with every little thing that could come up. 
and it can end up not being worth it to get all the way to the 100% through software because you can just throw friendly error warnings and say, you know, you're going to have to take care of the data in column 15 yourself. There's that saying that like, you know, the last 20% of a, of a software product takes 80% of the time, right? Because it's, it's, all the, it's all the finer details that always just soak up all of your time. Yeah, I think it's the, the first 80% takes 80% of your time and, and then the rest also takes 80% of your yes, time. Yes, right. Because there's just never enough time to get anything done. And, and software really is just never truly finished because there's, there's always going to be something that could be better or something that you missed. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree that it's a, it's important to keep your eye on what are you trying to do here, right? And if you've already saved hours and hours of people's time and you then look at the cost-benefit analysis of what's left and say, well, if I do all this work, I could save another 10 minutes, right? It's like, well, it yeah. may or may not be worth that extra time. Because um, what you could do instead is find something else where you can get an 80% solution pretty quick. Yeah, and that just from, uh, you know, if we're talking about the company paying to have those things solved, uh, value for money there is definitely better to, to, to have four or five things that are 80% better um, than maybe two things that are 100% better. Another nice thing about getting involved in tech is that besides learning a programming language where you can just make magic happen and you can uh, interface with all the business tools and the, the common uh, business applications that people use and are aware of, you're also probably getting exposed to a lot of other stuff, um, software tools and things that software people learn about before anybody else. You know, if you're part of the Orlando Developers Slack community, then you know about Slack and you might be the only person in your office who does. So you could have an office where people are dealing with all the problems of email and maybe still sitting around paper memos, God forbid, and just dealing with the problem of how do you communicate in an office in, in ideally a real-time format. And you could be the one who says, why don't we have a Slack team? And maybe people saw the, I think there was a Slack commercial in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago that didn't really explain what the company was doing. And you could present that as a solution to the company. You could present uh, something like Trello as a solution for organizing certain kinds of data. You could open up all the things that you can do with Google Calendar. You know, you just know about the tech possibilities for wiring together different aspects of people's lives. And even if you're not building it yourself, you're saying, here's a, a ready-made solution that other people have wired together for this kind of problem that I know we're experiencing. Yeah, I think generally tech people are, you know, if you're a programmer and you're in tech, you likely, like you said, you have, you just have a general knowledge about things in technology that maybe others don't. And in particular, if you work in a, at a company that is very non-techy, right, maybe they're very specifically knowledgeable about something else, but they don't know much about tech itself. And that's a very common thing. I mean, imagine a doctor's office, right? They, they know tons about medicine and caring for people, but they may or may not know anything about how to use a computer. So if you, you know, work in, in a place like that, where you have knowledgeable people who just don't have the specific knowledge that you do, then you have this this um, ability to bring technology to bear on these problems in a way that they, like we said, like we said in this whole episode, they may not even be aware that's even possible, right? right. And so you bring them fire, and then yeah. they think, "Wow, this is amazing! I didn't even know this was possible. We've we've automated this process and made it so much better, and our patients are happier, or you know, whoever the customer is, um, our, our employees are happier." Um, and you've you've provided a tangible benefit to your company. So as a junior, don't feel like the only thing that you have to offer 
to them is just your ability to sling code, right? You also are you are an expert in your own way, right? You may you may very well not feel like that, um, you know, going through school and 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 or whatever training you're getting, and then getting out into the world as a developer. You're like, I don't know hardly anything about development, right? I'm brand new. Um, I don't have much to offer. But what what we're trying to say is that you do you have more to offer than you think because if you're if you're that dedicated and you've done that training, um, you likely then also have a pretty good bead on the state of technology as it exists today and the things that are possible. Um, and even if, like Brian was saying, even if you're not going to code it yourself, you have that ability to bring in, hey, we can just get this software, install it, and give everyone an account, and boom, we've solved this problem that we've been having uh, that is inefficient. Um, and now we've made it a, you know, an efficient communication tool or an efficient organizational tool or whatever it might be. Um, and you will, hopefully, you should, right, be getting kudos for those kinds of things. And that's all kind of going on your on your kind of employee report card of, you know, they're a new developer and, they, and you know, they, they're learning and they're, they're expanding their knowledge of programming, but they're also bringing all this other knowledge and useful um, recommendations to the table as well. And that can only, you know, can only help your you're standing at the company. Yeah, and I think even if you're not working as a developer, maybe you're someone who's teaching yourself or you have a some kind of part-time online project that you're involved in and new people are always uh, just bereft when you ask them, what do you want to build? Because the, the, the thought is always, I need to make something that's going to be a venture-backed startup that's gonna you know go public someday. And the choices seem to be either that or I'm going to make a personal to-do list for the millionth time. Right. And I, th- I think... Only those two things. things. Only those That's two it. things. Those are the only options that you're allowed to make when you're beginning. But no, those aren't the only two options because a, a third way is to say I'm going to build something that's going to help me at my job. And I think that's a, a pretty straightforward path, I would like to think, into uh, carving out a role as a developer at wherever you're working, whether it's maybe you're a hospital administrator, maybe you're a paralegal at a law firm, or maybe you you have some kind of sales job for a construction company or something. But what you can do is spend a, a few hours when sort of no one is looking, building something that helps automate some business process. And then you present that to whoever you're working for and say, hey, look, I've made a thing and it's helpful. Do you think I could spend a day a week doing this kind of stuff and building other things that will make our lives better. Yeah. We had a couple of students who, who came through the iron door with the express purpose of not, they didn't want to become a, they didn't want to change careers and become a developer professionally. What they wanted to do was they wanted to get enough training to be able to build software for themselves to service their own business. And that's, that's a perfectly viable way to go. Um, and I think that what you brought up there about kind of maybe you work somewhere and you're learning programming and you want to get more into being a programmer professionally, um, a really great way to to kind of leverage yourself into that if there is an opportunity at the company is to, you know, kind of ask for, for what forgiveness rather than permission and, and say, here's this process. It doesn't work very well. I'm going to maybe on my own time or whatever, I'm going to I'm going to use it as a way to practice my programming skills and build this thing to help basically just make my life better, my my job better. Um, and then maybe it's it works well and you start to kind of, you know, show it around a little bit to your colleagues and say, hey, I built this tool you know, it really helps my process. Um, maybe it might be helpful for you too. And then, and then you start to kind of build some buzz about, 
hey, you know, Brian built this thing and it's really cool and maybe we should get into build other things, you know, and you can you can kind of create organic opportunity for yourself rather than kind of waiting for, you know, them to come say, hey, we now anoint you a developer, right? We've recognized your skill and we think that it's time for you to go. It's like you can you can kind of flip that script and and, and sort of create that opportunity for yourself by building. I mean, that's the way that my sister did it, you know, in, in a way is is I think maybe that was one of her first forays into i can i can engineer my own solutions that that idea of taking the filing cabinet and turning it into i don't think she wrote a program but she but she made an automated digital process and made her life better and started to realize like oh this is i can do this right uh over and over and over again and and improve my life and improve the lives of others as well and it's it's a good way to to um you know to get into that and if you decide whether it's because you you can't fully embrace that role in the job that you have now or because you you want a more general purpose software career i think it's a nice thing to have on a, a resume or on a portfolio that you didn't try another would-be venture-backed startup and you didn't um, build the millionth to-do list but you built something that solves a business need because then when you're discussing it instead of feeling like a very new software developer, you can feel like the subject matter expert in that business process, who, by the way, also knows enough about software to automate the business process. Yeah, I, on my resume, I have, um, when I was a tech, when I was a soft, uh, support tech, before I was a programmer, when I was going to school and learning programming, um, I, with my dad's help, uh, taught myself how to shell script in Linux, which is basically a way to automate processes. It's, it's programming, more or less, um, and uh, we had this this update process for our software that was basically like f fully manual. And so I started tinkering around with the idea of like, well, I could probably download this file from our server through a shell script and then I could install it with that. And then that way we wouldn't have to do all that manually. We could just run this script and it would just do it for us. And so I started tinkering around and I built it. And then I start and then I started just deploying it on machines that I would log into to help somebody with their with their their uh, problems they were having and it just started to snowball where eventually it became like the official tool to update our main software was that that script that I wrote and it ended up being over like a couple thousand lines and it had menu and it just kept getting bigger and <laughs> bigger it had menus and, bigger, and it was yeah. and it just kept getting you know and eventually when I when I transitioned into being a programmer I I basically like handed the baton and said hey some other person in support you're now responsible for this um because it's not just like some little thing that helps occasionally it's like this is we everybody in the company that relies on this thing to deploy software to the customer um and it's something that you know i'm really proud of it's and so i, I put it on my resume and it's like you said it's a way to showcase i didn't just do a bunch of homework problems or um or try to go you know go big and, and go move to california and build a venture back startup i i just saw a need and i built a tool and it worked really well and it was successful and i think that's something to be proud of now before we close i think we should talk a little bit about some of the uh pitfalls of working with non-technical people and, and bringing the one who brings fire to the office <laughs> because that's that can be about the level of understanding of tech that non-technical people have sometimes. Yes. And so you can run into situations where because you have written a script that will apply a regular expression to an Excel spreadsheet, everybody decides that you're probably also the person to 
um, rewire the router when something goes bad there. Right. Or they just think that you're a wizard, right? And then and that and that there is nothing beyond your grasp, and, <laughs> and and that you can you know defy gravity necessarily. Right, and that because if you're not a technical person, everything in tech just goes into that big bucket labeled tech, and it's not broken out into hardware and software and assembly language stuff. And so either they think that you because you know a thing in tech, you know everything about tech. Um, or they have such little understanding that they literally don't even understand what that means, and they think that you can do literally anything. Um, yeah, so that that's difficult. <laughs> just apropos of nothing, we I just watched uh, rewatching Star Trek TNG, and just watched the one. I think it's called Thine Own Self. I think is the name of the episode. It's basically where Data is on a planet trying to recover some wreckage. It's radioactive. Something happens, and he ends up having to go to this village that he wasn't supposed to contact. Um, and, and is, has like robot amnesia, right? Whatever the equivalent of uh, (laughs) Android amnesia is, something's wrong with his systems. Right. And he doesn't remember who he is or what's going on. And, uh, but as the the episode progresses, he gets more and more like himself. Um, and, and there's a scene where he's in school with the other children and they, the teacher is teaching them about like the elements of the earth. And it's like, you know, uh, there's rock in wood because it's heavy and there's fire in uh-huh. wood because you can, you can coax it out by lighting right. a match. And, and he's just like, no, none of that is <laughs> correct. Right. Like it's just, it's completely wrong. And, and he starts to exhibit knowledge and skill that they just, not only did they not know it, but they, but they, they reject it. They immediately reject it as just this is this is wrong. This is that's yeah. crazy talk, right? And and I definitely feel like that sometimes when I'm speaking about something with someone who's maybe very non-technical, they not only do they do they not understand, but then because they don't understand, they tend to kind of reject right what you're saying and not take it as valid or or truthful. Um, and that can be very challenging to to try and navigate that. Um, but what how would you, if if you were in a situation where you're trying to bring, maybe we take the example from before, we're trying to bring a technical process into a non-technical company, um, and maybe it's sufficiently complicated that, that you can't explain it to someone in two minutes, right? Um, how would you deal with that kind of, I guess, closed-mindedness? Well, uh, your, your Star Trek examples suggest maybe a, a different kind of problem than what I was thinking. Are you envisioning that you you present a solution and it's complicated enough that the person just doesn't want to use it? Yeah, I mean, I've encountered kind of everywhere, between, everything from uh, just sort of mild uh, confusion to like active go away you're bothering me don't t- don't talk about this tech stuff right like and and i just i'm just wondering if you have any strategies for kind of <laughs> how to how to deal with with people kind of on that spectrum and 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 professional ways to encourage um you know knowledge acquisition so that they so that they do feel like they're empowered and they are able to make you know, informed decisions about these things. Because oftentimes I found that the, the most senior people in a company tend to be the, the, least, the least technical. That's um, true. And yet they have the most power. So they have the most ability to make things happen or not make things happen, right? Squash things. Um, and so you have to find a, a, a strategy that allows you to get your points across and make it clear why this is useful and, and important without just spewing a bunch of techno jargon. 
Yeah, I think that's the key thing is to avoid the technical jargon and to communicate the benefit to them. Um, there's a tendency among tech people, I have it, you have it, um, to really want to explain the fine details of what we've built. Right. And you know, this this feature wasn't present in Swift 2. <laughs> I have that in spades. <laughs> yes. And that's something that the, the higher up who knows of tech as only the that thing that replaced the typewriter that I was used to. Um, that information is just going to cause that person uh, concern and... And heartburn. <laughs> heartburn. So you don't want to mention any, any of that stuff. But if you've built a complicated thing using lots of neat new technologies and it saves you five hours a week, that's what you want to say. I, I murmur, murmur, save five hours a week. Just get right to there. And then the question is, do you want me to save five hours a week or not? Not, do you want to be forced to endure a lecture on technology and, and try to learn new things that you don't care about? Yeah, I think probably the, the most important thing is, is the very first thing out of your mouth is this either will save you money or this will make you money. Yes. Right? And then everything else is secondary, right? Literally everything else in that solution is is if they ask, we can we can explain, right? But but you want to you want to lead with you will save money, therefore make more, or you will literally generate new revenue from this solution. Right. And the the initial response to that is going to be great. And then you can maybe explain something and then you'll get a question. And that question is going to be, why are you still in my office? Because <laughs> you've already given all the information that that person wants to know. And I think the other thing, in addition to wanting to explain the finer points of our our solution is that we want to be recognized for the work that we've done. Right. Yeah. So, and we feel like, because as engineers, you know, the way that I, th I think the way that I appreciate another engineer's uh, knowledge and skill is that I understand the things that they, they build. Right. Yes. And in order to do that, I have to understand what they've built. So I have to ask questions and, and how does this work? And what about this? And what about that? And so, for me, the way that I value another engineer is it's through their work and through the specifics of their work, right? Not just like, I built a thing, that's great, but like, how did you build that thing, right? That's what I want to know. Whereas most people who are not technical don't really, unfortunately, don't really care about how you built it. They care that you built it, and they particularly care that you built it if that thing makes them money or saves them money or or, or saves them time or there's a tangible uh, non-technical benefit, right? Right. But if, but if it's just I built a thing and it's really cool and here's all the ways that it works, meh, you know. Yeah, if, if Ben is going to explain something to me, then it, it's going to make sense to, to harp on, hey, I have this really elegant solution to asynchronous communication in an environment where connectivity is limited. And then at the end, he can throw in, and it's going to save my company. And, and I will come away from that remembering, you know, oh, that was a really elegant way of dealing with asynchronous communication. And then I think he said it was going to save his company 10 it was $10 or maybe $10,000. I don't know. But it was really an elegant solution to the engineering problem. 
Because we are not like most people. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, I think part of that is like, we're not going to see that money, right? That's not. Oh, that's yeah, not, that's also I true. mean, we're interested in the money, but only insofar as like, is that, is that mine? If it's not mine, then like I, you know, then, then what I care about is, is I care about the, you know, the what's and wherefores and the hows and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you are dealing with non-technical people, whether it be a colleague a subordinate or a superior, right? And kind of no matter where they are on the org chart, um, realize that when you go to them and you need, you need something from them, you want an approval or whatever, or you're just trying to explain yourself, right. And kind of what you've done for the last month. Um, there's going to a meetup, right. And giving a talk about, about something that you've built, right. There's that audience. And then there's the audience that you have of non-technical people at work, right. And, and you can't present the information in the same way to both groups because the engineers won't care about the money you saved, right. They want to hear how you did it. And the owners and the, you know, whoever else, you know, business people that are involved won't care that it's a novel way to do asynchronous, you know, connectivity when, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you said, I don't even right. remember what you said, but <laughs> whatever, the, whatever the algorithm was, right. They don't care about that. They care about, Oh wait, how much money? Like it'll save us a hundred thousand dollars a year. Then yes, let's, let's definitely do that. Or it'll, it's a new business line that we didn't even know was even possible. And now we can sell this product that, that, that is, you know, maybe got a, a space in the market that nobody's filling and we're going to make a bunch of money. Awesome. But as far as how that was done, it's not that important. So uh, it's important to 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 gear your your thought process and your um, the way that you communicate. You want to change your tone basically and your and your presentation based on who it is that you're talking to um, to to make sure that everyone gets out of it what they need to get out of it. Now there is the the other problem that you can run into when communicating with non technical people, which is uh, instead of just the fear, uncertainty, and doubt around the whole idea of tech is the perceiving tech as just one big ball of stuff problem where they think, well, if you were able to um, make an app for your iPhone, then you're probably also going to be able to uh, increase the server uh, throughput or something. You know, you're going to be able to deal with all of the the router issues or you're going to be able to do whatever other problem comes up under the big giant umbrella of tech. And how do you deal with that kind of problem when it comes up? Yeah, this idea that I, I know a thing about tech, so therefore I know everything about tech, and then I can solve literally any problem that, that the company might come up that might come up in the company um, that needs to be solved. And since they can have me do it, they don't have to pay someone else to do it, right? <laughs> this idea that like, well, this is a tech person, you can just solve it. We don't need to hire someone else. Um Hmm, how have I done that in the past? I, I have been, earlier in my career, I've been a lot more, um, what's the right word? Jack I of guess, all trades kind of? A... No, I was going to say more, com- I guess, compliant in no. my in my desire to be impressive and to and to do a good job. Um, and so I've been more willing to be like, yeah, sure, I'll just, whatever, yeah, I'll, I'll figure, figure it, out, it right? out, right? I'll figure it out. And sometimes that works out well and I learn a new thing. And sometimes it's like, wow, this is a whole industry. This is a whole career. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not going to do, a, I'm, I'm not going to do a good job on this particular problem. And I don't have any desire to learn enough about it to actually get good at it. Um, so it, it varying degrees of success on that. Um, but I would say as my career has gone forward, um, I've gotten more confident in my own expertise, um, which means that 
I'm also more confident in telling people, I'm sorry, I can't help you with, with that. I don't, I don't have enough experience at it. And, and I, I have enough experience at enough things that I know that I won't do a good job. Like, like I don't have the tools necessary to solve this problem. And so if you have me do it anyway, I'm not going to do a very good job. I won't be happy. You won't be happy. It's just a bad outcome. Let's, let's pick a different solution that, let that works better. Um, whereas before it was more like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Right. Who, what, why not? Right. But, but you, I think the more, you know, this idea, which is not just a programming thing, it's kind of a, you know, just a, becoming wiser, right? The more you learn about everything, the more you realize how much you don't know and how much you don't understand um, and how humbling that can be that like, mm, I have knowledge about stuff, but there's all kinds of things that I don't know anything about. Um, and I think you become more confident in that, in, in saying, yeah, that's that's not for me. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, and again, no one will be happy from this, right? So let's let's not go down that road because I know where it's going to end, and it's going to end in unhappiness for everyone. So let's let's pick a different solution. Yeah, I think probably the the best you can do is to first off say that's not something that you want me doing, and second, there can be a, maybe a little education around that as far as here are the things that I can do, and here's why this is not one of those things, although. Again, probably the, the only interesting piece of information to whoever is asking you is, oh, he can't do this. Um, but probably what you can do to, um, to move towards a solution is to say, I know enough about what would need to go on to make a solution that I could evaluate someone else. You know, I, I could find you somebody probably and know whether that person is is reputable and and uh, whether their ideas make sense to me but i don't have i'm not the person you want to actually do this yeah i think being firm in your in your expression of uh an unwillingness slash inability to do a good job and there, therefore we shouldn't this shouldn't be the road we go down is important and and i think a pivot right you don't want to be just like no right if you just if you just tell them no and then stare at them until they walk away is not necessarily a good idea. Um, so, so, uh, you know, or a firm... worse, no, obviously, because I know these technologies and this right. is one of those technologies. Right. Um, so you want to, you want to be firm and, and don't try and don't necessarily try and engage things that you both don't understand and maybe don't like and all those things. Um, but also see if you can offer a pivot, right. That lets them get what they want. Um, but not from you. <laughs> So like you said, I don't know about this, but I know enough to evaluate someone else or I know, I don't know how to do this, but I know we could, I know of a tool that we could buy that will, would solve this problem for us forever. And all we have to do is just buy this tool and then this problem isn't a problem anymore. Um, so just some way that you could get the problem solved without you doing sort of the, the manual labor of getting it done. All right. And I think that's all we have to say about that. Yeah, hopefully this was helpful in uh, just getting you maybe to understand a little bit more about what it's like to, to work in a, a group of people that you have this specific knowledge and they have other knowledge and you have to kind of bridge that gap and understand each other and, and do that cultural exchange. It is exceedingly common. I think I try to think, I don't think I've ever worked at a company where the company's goal was to advance the field of software creation and computer science ever. It's, it's always been, 
we work in the you know whatever you know i've worked in in dod stuff i've worked in uh in in just different industries the 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 medical industry you know i've i've worked in different areas where the goal is to advance patient care or it's to advance simulation to train officers for the military or Biotech whatever or bookstores or yeah many different things so it's 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 n- hardly ever the case that you're going to be working to advance the field of computer science you're going to be using your knowledge of, of software to advance the 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 some other industry right some some other group and it's important for you to understand some about that industry and it's important for those people to understand a little bit about software so there's there's that you know you want to encourage that exchange of information all right i think we've come to the end of yet another episode but i'm sure there are people out there who have not heard every episode yet so ben where can they go what can they do so everything that you need to know about us is at mvc.fm. That's our website. Um, you can listen to all of our past episodes right on the page if you'd like. You can also find out information about how to subscribe to our podcast. We're basically everywhere. So if you have a favorite podcast player, we're likely there. Um, we're on iTunes. If you could go to iTunes, if you use that and give us a rating and review, we'd love that. Um, and if you'd like to provide us feedback, you can do so on Twitter. We are at MVC Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.